Mike. Welcome all of our listeners to this special midweek installment of IGN Digigods. Uh, this is Wade Major on behalf of Mark Kaiser, and uh, we recently spoke with Linda Obst, the uh, extraordinary producer of so many classics, including Adventures in Babysitting, The Fisher King, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, Contact, The Siege, Hope Floats, and currently who is uh, executive producer of television's Hot in Cleveland. Linda Obst, of course, wrote the uh, famous memoir, Hello, He Lied, in 1996. And here we are nearly 20 years later, and she has written a uh, something of a sequel to that entitled Sleepless in Hollywood, Tales from the New Abnormal in the Movie Business, which we thought was uh, extremely important to discuss as the book speaks directly to a lot of the issues that many of our listeners and uh, film fans in general find so important right now, namely what's happened to the movie business in just the last decade. What does it mean for people who love movies right now, who love to make movies right now, and what does it mean going forward? What are movies going to look like in the future? Uh, Mark and I have both read the book. We think it is extremely important for our listeners and for movie fans in general, and uh, we thought that uh, an interview, an in-depth interview with Linda about the book and its contents merited a special uh, off-week, mid-week installment of the show. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Linda Obst. I am here talking with uh, Linda Obst, a producer extraordinaire who has written an incredible new book, Sleepless in Hollywood. And uh, it's, in many ways, I guess we could say it's a sequel to Hello, He Lied, uh, that sort of picks up and and fills in all the the blanks about what happened in the interim. And, And that's so fascinating, because I honestly think, not only is this better than your first book, I would say this is the most important book for anyone who is working or wants to work in the film business, I would say since William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. Uh, I think it, it sort of uh, it fills in the blanks and it unravels this Rubik's Cube of what the industry has become. Could you talk just for a second about... You, you start the book saying that you had to figure out what was going on, that everybody was scratching their heads. And the book is really your process in putting all of that together. Um, talk just for a moment about the, the impetus behind that. Well, I was at Paramount at a very critical moment. We, um, I had gone there to be with Sherry Lansing, whom I loved, who had brought me to um, the studio from an incredibly happy period at Fox, where it was very easy to make movies for a number of reasons, but one of which is that they have a very verticalized model. They own all their ancillaries. So a producer could figure out what it took to get a movie made. It had to be able to sell to any number or combination of their ancillaries. And um, by ancillaries, I mean their uh, DVD market, their VOD market, their... I don't even know if there was one back then, but their international market or their satellite market or their television stations, they owned all of their ancillaries. And so if you hit enough of the boxes or at a certain price point, you could get a picture made with a good argument to very good executives who also happen to read. And um, But I left because I was um, courted by Sherry and John Goldwyn to finally make first dollar uh, profits on my movies I never had. Um, Which is incredible to me, I mean, with the success that you had, that you didn't have that before, but uh, anyway. You know, looking back, it was incredible to me, too, and, you know, if you saw the Lily Ledbetter case, there is a certain degree of women getting less than men. Yeah getting paid less than men, and at the same time I was raising a son and I needed the upfront fees, which were always paid against. You know, I needed the upfront guarantee because I was, you know, a single mom. So um, if I had been independently wealthy, I might have been able to trade off for back-end points. Do you know? Yeah. But um, I wasn't, do you know? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, So Sherry thought it was horrible and said, you're going to make first dollar gross here. So I left my very happy home, went to Paramount, and then it proceeded to go through sort of a series of cataclysmic changes over the eight years that I was there. Um, In many ways, it was a turning of a battleship from during one paradigm shift to another. During John Dolgen and the Sherry Lansing administration, his idea was not market share, but profitability. 
So he, and he wanted to report the highest possible profits to his board. So he would make the movie for the lowest price possible. And when I say that, I mean the lowest price possible. Yeah, I mean, you, and you um, say that in the book. You talk about the, the frugality being the, uh, the, the Sher- he and Sherry had that, that it was their battle that always resulted in the, in the budget. It was a very creative, dynamic battle for them. They were, yeah. and they still are, incredibly close friends, so the partnership worked for them. Uh, Sherry had her gut, so she could pick whatever picture she wanted based on nothing but her gut, and I believe in gut. That was what was great about the team. And she picked some phenomenal hits in the early part of her reign. Um, phenomenal hits. You yeah. know, we're talking Forrest Gump and Braveheart and, you know, I mean, just a phenomenal series of original one-off international hits. But, of course, they didn't think about international in those days, right? right. And so what they did is they sold off all of their other rights in order to bring down the cost. So they sold off usually the DVD. They sold off International, which is unheard of these days. It's like criminal. It would never be done. They sold off um, uh, all of the valuable rights that are on their P&L, and they would just keep domestic. In the case of How to Lose a Guy, they didn't even keep domestic. They just held on to DVD, hmm. which is unbelievably ironic, given what happened a few years later to the DVD market and my profits, <laughs> yeah. but, um, which were only based on Paramounts, right, not the overall profits of the film, because they were owned by some German tax shelter. Right. But whatever good deal John could make, because he was a former business affairs executive, he would make to lower the cost of the picture so he could report to the board, look, this picture only costs X, right? Yeah. And um, then the producer would always have to cut their fee because producers want to go to production so much that at the end of the day, just as they got their budget down to the bone, then they said, one more cut. And they would <laughs> then they would cut the, the producer's fee because they can't cut the writer's fee. They're protected by the guild. They can't cut the director's fee. He's big talent. And they can't cut the movie star's fees, right? Right. Now they're doing that, but rarely, but sometimes, Right. So, but usually studios can't cut actors' fees. So once they got the, so that was their model was to do the most penurious, um, and that was a shock to me when I got there. Obviously, now during that regime, it worked for a while, until the onslaught, until two things happened: the collapse of the DVD market, as Peter Chernin explains in the book, which had been 50% of the profit margin. Um, the cushion of profit in the movie industry for a good long time. Uh, People were buying the library. People were buying DVDs of their favorite movies. And that was the most critical portion of the profit and loss statement that the studios had been making to justify their green light to their boards. And when the DVD collapsed, the uh, studios were frozen in what to do. That was the point at which I realized that I couldn't get any answers on my material. But by then, Sherry and John were gone. And they were gone, but for different reasons. Because, and this is also connected to the change between the new and old abnormal, Sherry and John, with their penurious model, could not react to the giant onslaught, the the, uh, incredible onslaught of special effect-driven pictures that suddenly started hitting the market at the exact same time as the DVD collapse. There was Shrek and Harry Potter, and then eventually, of course, Titanic, which Sherry bought half of and bought domestic. Of. Which was so brilliant. She had the gut to buy that, right? Yeah. And one of her most brilliant moves. But they couldn't buy them for development. They couldn't buy them to make them because they were too expensive. And their penurious model didn't allow them to buy those scripts and then to make them in-house because suddenly they were making $200 million movies, 150 and $250 million movies. And those weren't the kinds of movies that the Dolgen model allowed. And they didn't realize who did that this was going to change the world forever, that our technology was going to turn out to be critical to the, to the enduring success of the new model and what would eventually become the replacement of the DVD cushion 
and the lifeblood of new profits for the movies. None, I don't think anyone realized at that first moment how the success ultimately of Titanic and then Avatar and then all of these movies would fundamentally transform the movie business. But Sherry and John were ultimately replaced. Uh, well, they weren't replaced. John was replaced. Tom Freston came in. Sherry chose to leave. Brad Gray came in, created a new team who were very internationally focused. So during the time I was at Paramount, the whole ship turned around into the opposite model from what I call the old abnormal model based on gut and one-offs, right? Yeah. To the new abnormal model, which was based on what would please the international market that was now dominating prof- the profits. Which and is franchises time, and superheroes and sequels and all the rest of it. And pre-awareness. Anything yeah. that could be sequelized. That be- When you sequelize a movie, it, by the second iteration, it can become double its value in the international market. By the third, even more. And then more and more as the iterations proceed. Because sequels are a form of pre-awareness. Just like Superman is a form of pre-awareness. We all have heard of it, right? Yeah. yeah. And Batman is a form of pre-awareness. Well, I, I think... I call it... I, I was going to say, not to, not to interrupt, but, you know, the, this summer has been interesting if you look at uh, everything from Superman to Iron Man to the Lone Ranger. Uh, we're, we're, they're all properties that are, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, let me, it doesn't w- matter. I mean, sometimes one of the reasons they have such pre-awareness is because they're so old. Right. It's hard to create a property with pre-awareness that's new. Yeah. The reason they're old is because we heard of them somehow in the dim, dim past, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's why we have to reboot it, reinvent it, give it effects that give it the sense of modernity. This is, what, the third iteration of Superman? Yeah. And with X-Men... Right, It's an old property, but it's done with new effects. And then after one series of sequels, it gets rebooted into a new set of sequels. So the job of the, of the studio machine is to keep creating new, a sense of freshness about properties that are centrally very old. And this is why the IPs have become important, things we used to call books, right? Right. Hunger Games, Harry Potter. Those are the only competitive uh, properties with pre-awareness that aren't, um, you know, from our parents' childhood, that aren't from the vault. You know, one of the things that I found um, so rewarding in reading the book is that you crystallized all of the thoughts that I, you know, I go on radio every month and and on this podcast every week, and and, uh, anyone who listens to me has heard me complain about these things for years and uh, I've never been able to sort of put it all together in, in one kind of grand map like you did. And you, you refer to the, the two different kinds of films, the tent poles and the tadpoles. Tent poles being the great big pre-recognition things the studios are making. They spend $200 million making them, another $150 million marketing them. And then all that's left are the little movies. And I've, I've kind of, from my discussions, I've distilled that down to big movies with no ideas and little movies that are nothing but ideas. And there's nothing in between anymore, which used to kind of be Hollywood's bread and butter. Uh, you know, well, those uh, are the kinds of movies I used to make. Exactly. I mean, I mean, Sleepless in Seattle, all those great romantic comedies that you made, those are the middle. Uh, you, made, you know, The Godfather was the middle. Uh, all the President's Men was the middle. Lawrence of Arabia, Sound of Music. These are all kind of movies that sit in, the, in that place. And they don't really, the studios don't do that anymore. And, and through, uh, through much of your book, I was looking for that glimmer of hope, and I was looking for something to hang on to. Is there, is there a way? And then you have that uh, wonderful interview at the end, um, with um, with the, Michael the with Michael Linton and uh, where he basically kind of says no, it's it's you, you can't keep doing the superhero stuff, the fireballs and the tights. It's it's going to eventually run its course, and those foreign audiences that are driving that will eventually become as sophisticated as American audiences, and and perhaps right. will will move back to that place. And I and I, and I was so glad that the book had that trajectory. And I and I'm not giving anything away here because it it's you know I think people need to read it beginning to end to to really wrap their heads around this whole new paradigm. But it, it, is that is that a correct assessment? Do you feel like there is 
room for those movies again? Will they, will they come back? Will there be a place for them, at least on the level that they used to be? Well, I think it's important to note that Michael Linton is the CEO of Sony, which is clearly one of our very best studios. Um, they made The Social Network. They made Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. They made Moneyball. Um, they, uh, They're the only ones who are doing something different. I mean, this came out of uh, uh, just recently at the, uh, the, the uh, annual exhib- uh, uh, show for exhibitors, uh, that uh, you know, they were the only ones who showed up in New York with a, a really diversified slate. Um, everyone else kind of came with the same old tentpole formula, and Sony showed up with a really big and broad and very diversified plate. And part of the reason for that is that the partnership between Michael Linton and Amy Pascal is a true partnership, and it's unique. Michael Linton truly understands the intellectual, the uh, international business. He understands conceptually the movie business. Um, he's re- quite a brilliant man. He's educated. Um, and Amy Pascal has gut. And I think it's my fundamental belief that people cling to formulas in the movie business um, every so many years because they're terrified of gut. There's no component in the pro- profit and loss statement for how good is this picture. Yeah. Do you believe in this picture? Why do you think this picture is going to work? It's all quantified. They're terrified of qualifications. They want quantifications. But the truth is, the longer a studio's reign is successful, it's because there's a person at its helm with a gut. At the end of the day, you have to read and have instincts. That's why the early studio moguls are good. Because you can't pick every picture you love. You have to pick the best pictures that you love. You have to know what's good. You have to know who to put as director. You have to oversee that picture. You have to do it for a price. And then you have to hire the right actors. Now, so it's a process that involves talent. So, yes, I do think that every – I'm kind of a dialectician. I'm kind of a Hegelian. I admit I, I, very I, out of fact. Which is a great part, which is a great part <laughs> of the book, too. Um, but I think that there are only so many ways you can destroy the same cities over and over again without it becoming completely numbing. Yeah. There are only, only so many times um, – we can see the White House go down, or we can see uh, Paris burn, or we can, when it's not real, or we can see gigantic machines blowing up, or cars turning into monsters and robots. I mean, how it's this, it, it ultimately becomes demoralizing, which is why the domestic audience is so much more discerning about the good tentpoles like Fast and Furious, which I might add was created. It was a one. It was an original. Yeah. Uh, not based on an ancient property, from the bad ones, which are more cynically created to just be based on effects. Now, the international audience, you have to realize, was just um, introduced to these same movies um, years after we were, right? So their their pre-adolescence, when it comes to their joy in seeing this kind of um, spectacularum, well, I think the telling thing—the telling thing in your book, with that, with respect to that—is when uh, you you talk about your meeting with Jim Giannopoulos, who showed you the profit structure for the Ice Age films, where they're effect- effectively making the, they're effectively <laughs> making the same amount each installation, each installment domestically, but they're exponentially more successful overseas. Exactly, because that's pre-awareness. Yeah. And the fundamental issue here, and this is why sequels are so important. I call that the definition of sequelitis is because you cannot market internationally the way we market domestically. In the old days when the domestic audience was, 20, was 80% of the market, you could open a movie like Sleepless or a movie like The Fisher King or any of the romantic comedies I made by selling television ads all over the country. And if they liked them and they liked the trailers, people would go. Yeah. Now, if you tried to do that internationally, it would be absolutely impossible cost-wise. You can't sell television ads all over the world. So they have to already know the name of the movie and know they want to go on it, go to it. The only power of the domestic audience is is, is if they heard it was a hit in America, it helps, and it triggers a certain amount of spending overseas automatically. That's how Bridesmaids made it overseas. No one thought 
that it was going to ever play overseas, four unknown women from television. But it had triggered such a high number domestically that it had to open a certain number of movies overseas. And then lo and behold, four unknown women were a hit overseas as well. That's how we break new international stars. So the marketing costs make it so difficult for a one-off to succeed or a movie that can't sequelize to succeed. That's what happened to dramas and comedies and most critically romantic comedies. There's no, they're not sequelizable. But you see that a movie like Ice Age that begins to not be important as significant in the domestic audience becomes wildly important in the international import in the international audience where it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. I looked at that list when Jim showed it to me. He said, do you know what this means? And I said, yes, it means you'll be making Ice Ages forever. Yeah. Ice Age forever. And, um, and we'll sit here and go, why are they making another Ice Age? And now we'll know why. You know, and on that note, there's something else that you you mentioned, which really hit me like a lightning bolt in uh, in the Paramount chapter, where you said that that market share is more important than profitability, and uh, that sort of dovetails with something that I've always complained about, which is the 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 way in which corporate ownership has changed all of these businesses, and and uh, you know, I'm one of my the saying people have heard me say a million times is, you know, the two things that should not be publicly owned, sports teams and studios. Hmm. Because you, you know, we all saw what happened when we had corporate ownership of, you know, the Angels and, and the Ducks and, and how that just it removed that personal gut thing that you're talking about, that Sherry used mm-hmm. her gut. The old moguls had their gut. Um, you know, that uh, Amy Pascal has a great gut. I mean, this is, it's such a part of the business. But you can't, like you said, you can't put it on a profit and loss statement. You can't go to the board and say, um, invest in my gut. You can't have your shareholder phone call and say, my gut's doing really well this month. And it just seems to me that if we really want great movies, the corporate structure, having to worry about corp- uh, quarterly earnings, having to worry about market share, seems directly at odds with everything that makes movies good, that gives audiences what they want. I mean, is that a correct assessment? Well, it's quite brilliant, actually. There's nothing we can do about it, but it's quite brilliant, because I remember in the middle of writing this book, I ran into Linda Janklow, who was the daughter of uh, uh, Mervyn Leroy, the granddaughter, I think, of Harry Warner, right? Yes. And she said to me, the whole thing changed when they had to start writing quarterly reports. That's when the movie business changed. Hmm. And that's the freedom that the old moguls had. And I think it's astonishing that you just hit that on the head like that. But the fact is that there are ways in which this moves forward. Um, as a Hegelian, I think we can move forward, but we can't move backwards, right? right. We're not going to unmove the cor- undo the corporate structure or the corporate ownership of the studios. So we have to let the intrinsic seeds of the destruction of the model undo themselves and then take pieces of the new abnormal uh, that work and continue them because we need the profits from global market. There are good things about globalization we can discuss, but then take the stupid parts of it, the the, the tent poles that are hugely expensive and not interesting to anyone that are made cynically for huge amounts of money and huge amounts of marketing money, and be discerning about them and not make those and take that $250 million and break it down into a number of smaller movies that are guaranteed by their quality, if not, you know, and that's where gut is required. And each studio usually makes one shot for the Oscars, make one shot for the market, not just the Oscars, do you know? Yeah. And allow a $200 million hit or a $100 million hit or even a movie that makes $70 million domestically. That used to be fine for the business. As long as it doesn't lose money, right? you know, as long as it makes a margin of profit. I mean, literally, my best rom-coms would make $220 million profits, and it doesn't seem to be sufficient anymore. And I sort of feel like bears make money and pigs go to slaughter. Yeah. Eventually, aiming for these billion-dollar babies are going to bring too many... Four hundred million dollar business enterprises down, and that's 
that's what Steven Spielberg was talking about. Right, I, and I was gonna I was gonna make mention of that too. Obviously, the, you know Spielberg talking about that, and then we had Soderbergh's. Uh, uh, keynote at the uh, San Francisco Film Society, which sort of got everybody talking about all these issues as well. And he talking about going into television, and then there's that great section in your book about television, which all mm-hmm. sort of, you know, defines this new paradigm, because that's the flip side, I think, to the to what Giannopoulos was saying with the, the foreign versus domestic market, or when you show an amazing chart that shows just how huge television has become yep. exponentially larger than the movie divisions. Um, maybe that'll be the tail that wags the dog, perhaps. Um, well, what I, I are we all see. talking about on Monday mornings, do you know? Yeah. Um, Sunday night TV, cable right. TV, right? And the networks are getting better. I mean, basically, the absence of the necessity of great writing in movies has driven great writers to join their partners in television. They're the boss in television. They don't have to resolve their stories by the third act. It's all character-driven. Yeah. It's, it's the complete reverse of what's required in writing features right now. And where, now, perhaps, well, I was gonna say, and where perhaps those people will acquire the power and the clout to be able to come back and help make changes in, in the movie end, perhaps. Well, let's see. Yeah. You know, some of them make, I mean, I don't think J.J. is making great changes in the movie industry. No. But they so well, they sure will get clout, and let's see what they do with it. Do you know? Right, right. David Chase chose to make a small indie, but he can yeah. do whatever he wants. Do you know? I I think that the businesses are a big mush pot now. Do you know? Yeah. Entertainment is entertainment. Soon we'll be all watching them on one device. Um, although I do think the theatrical experience in a theater is still very important. Um, movie business has all this glamour. But the television business has all the money. And by the way, that was always true. When I came to town, I heard this expression that was, if you want a good table at Morton's, be in the movie business. Mm -hmm. But if you want a house in Malibu, go into television. Right. (laughs) But movie people just got all the attention. Well, I mean, I, when I when I was uh, growing up, I remember uh, the wealthiest people in the in the business were Norman Lear and uh, Merv Griffin, and that was. entirely television generated and uh, nobody really gave them quite the same respect that they gave, you know, some of the movie people. So it was, it, you're, you're right. It was sit upstairs at the Golden Globes. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Um, now, here, here's something that I, that I wanted to ask you about as well, because the, the demise of all the independent divisions, you were just saying, you know, it, that your, your bears and, and pigs comment, you know, um, we, we need, we need those profitability, those constant profit generators. And all the independent divisions were doing so well. The studios acquired them and created them over a period of time, good solid decade, when they were really pretty much consistently profitable, whether it was New Line, Picture House, Miramax, Paramount Classics, Warner Independent, uh, Focus. I mean, they, you know, Fox Searchlight, obviously, Sony Classics, they were, they were the two golden children of all of that. But now, apart from Sony Classics and Searchlight, and Focus is kind of on the bubble, the others were all completely obliterated in about an 18-month period around 2005 and 2006. And yet, in your book, you talk about how the studios do invest in independence in local areas, in, in India and Germany and so forth, where they're making local romantic comedies for the local market because there is a market for them. But there's still a market for them here. Why, why do you think they, they gave up on that principle domestically, yet they still pursue it for it? I think there isn't enough money in it for the studios. It costs them a lot of money to do, and the profits aren't significant enough for the studios, uh, given the amount of overhead and whatever is involved in the startups. Paramount had a very good start to its to its uh, new division, because John Lesher brought all of his projects uh, as an agent over from Endeavor. So he had that very good start, and still those movies get a lot of attention, and they don't generate a lot of profits. Clearly, the most successful have survived. It was Darwinian, and it was the time of the recession. So they grew during the boom, and they died during the recession, like very many other businesses. So when you have people at the top with gut, like Peter Rice and Nancy Utley, who ran Searchlight, and like Jim Seamus, who runs Focus, they survived, right? Right. Michael uh, uh, Barker, I think his name is, who runs, yeah, runs Sony. Sony Classics, mm-hmm. is really good. 
So once again, in a Darwinian situation, the talent rises to the top, and um, and so you see those divisions succeed. Also, Fox and Sony have the um, had the resources to sustain them. But what you saw with the tadpoles, with the indies, is that micro minis uh, with HD, it made pictures much less expensive to make. So they were no longer reliant on film, so they didn't have to be made at the prices that the mini majors were making them for. So after the recession, the independent market turned into a micro mini independent market, where there were I would almost say scores of thousands of new pictures made because it became so inexpensive to make them. Scores of thousands of new ones were submitted to festivals but didn't get in necessarily because of the volume. Um, But now there are new venues like YouTube and all sorts of new Internet venues in which they can be shown and then later discovered. You know, I hope they do finally get seen. Um, and there, once again, movie stars are your friends. Those movies are all getting made practically for free, you know, yeah. um, with no crew getting paid, which makes me sad. Um, but they're getting made because actors want to work in valuable pro- properties, Yeah, you know, in good scripts. Writers uh, are working for free. But, it, 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 I mean, this is a little concerning for those who want to make a living at this going forward. This is my is concern. Every- is everything becoming too fractured and fragmented? I mean, I you know I've seen it both in the film business and in publishing. We've seen it in music business. You know, we see musicians yep. who say, uh, "My song just got played a million times on Pandora, and they just and sent I me a check nothing. for ten dollars." Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, the, the question is, is, is is there? You know, it was it was one thing in you know uh, 1968 when you know you only had three networks and you could be a great show and, and because somebody had to pick one of the three and you know even if you were number 3 you were still getting tens of millions of people watching you or when you know it, there were only so many movies opening and there weren't all these other competing forces for our attention but now everything has been democratized to the point where we can see everything all the time. And your interview with Linton talks about that as well, where he thinks that he says things need to be a bit, a little bit difficult. You know, if you have too much food in front of you, you're going to overeat. If you have too much alcohol, you're going to drink too much. It seems now we have too many choices and it's making it hard for people to earn a living. Well, I think a few things about that. I think you're right on a lot of these things. I think for one thing, some movies are being starved to the point of, um, Reductio ad absurdum. Nobody's getting paid, and those movies, they're very hard to get seen. And so all of this starvation and hard work and dedication and passion is going into projects that ultimately won't get seen, and that makes me sad. And that's possibly a technological transition until we have sufficient amount of venues where people can find niche films. Um, but we don't know exactly what's going to occur on the Internet in terms of additional venues and how we're going to find the films we're looking for or if there's ever going to be a place for this many micro-minis. On the other hand, um, you asked me about... um, what was your your second question? Well, that the that the, 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 the uh, that when there's too much, when there, it's just it's too fragmented, yeah. is is anyone going to be able to make a living? And uh, and, no. and, and and at some point, how how do you make exactly a living? Right. Okay, so you uh, right now you can't make a living that way. What it's best for is talent. Okay, there right. used to be no way whatsoever to become a director. Okay, literally, at writers who had been writing hits for twenty years didn't have any footage. So no one would hire them. Uh, people keep saying women aren't directors. Women aren't directors. Women aren't directors. Why is that happening? If a woman sits down right now, uses her credit cards and her iPad or her i her and gets some cheap HD equipment, she and gets all the favors. She can get it on YouTube. She can get a bunch of hits, and she can get represented and get hired for a studio production. No one knows if it's a girl or a guy that that put that great short on YouTube. My son is now representing a Brazilian director who put a short, a fabulous-looking, stylish short on YouTube. It got 100,000 hits. Everybody was after it, and now he's directing a movie for Universal. Wow. So it circumvents the gatekeepers and allows talent to show their wares. 
So technologically, it's great for talent. It's not great necessarily for the final product because right. it's too hard to find the final product. So in terms of making a living, that's why I like television, okay? Yeah. Because there are so many new and growing venues in television where you can actually find them on your screen, either on your computer screen or on your television screen, and soon that will be one entity on your iPad. Um, they are open to original ideas. Um, you have to learn the business. It took me a couple of years yeah. of being pretty stupid. Um, but television is not um, – it's a place in which you can make a living. It's a place in which um, – uh, n the new venues require uh, new models. Um, webisodes can turn into television ideas, so you can create them as webisodes mm -hmm. and then recreate them for television. Um, and there are so many uh, proliferating platforms that there were four born last year. Who knows how many there'll be in four years? Right. And you can grow from webisodes to, to an outlying venue to cable. Do you know? Yeah. That's a pattern that you can have build a career through. You can get your work seen. And, that's, and it's changing every day, it seems. Every day. Yeah. The speed of that is exciting as opposed to the pace of features. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the, the, the kind of the – subtext subtextual threads of the book that uh, that I so enjoyed is it, it, it you know it has a really it has a good feminist strain to it and uh, I, I think it's clear there's no coincidence that the, uh, the the characters that really shine in the book are women who seem to have a clue when the men don't um, Sherry Lansing obviously most most notably but also Sue Kroll who just since in the last couple of weeks now is, is part of the new triumvirate over there at, uh, yep. at, at Warner Brothers so it certainly seems like, uh, and then of, of course uh, Amy Pascal. It, it seems like on a certain level, uh, you, you can't read your book without getting the sense that women have better instincts than men, at least in the current corporate environment. Um, and yet, Susanna Orozco's spec script analysis just recently found that spec sales by women, by female writers, uh, plummeted uh, over the last number of years, and and, and were practically halved. Uh, once we got into that period that you call the Great Contraction. Y you know, uh, Nora Ephron, good friend of yours, and uh, Don Steele, you know, you say in the book, was, was your best friend. And I'm just wondering, do you feel like we're maybe in a, in a, in a transitional place? Because obviously it's not great for women in some, in, in some sense, certainly for, for female writers right now, but it seems to be really good for women who are in executive and, and leadership positions who are scaling the studio ranks. Uh, Nina Jacobson being another one who, you know, producing The Hunger Games is... is she's, she made quoted, a franchise for women. You quote her in the book as talking about the future is for women. You know, the franchise mm -hmm. of the future of women. So I, I, I'm almost seeing, like, two different messages being sent by the industry right now. What If, if you're kind of talking mm -hmm. to women who are, who are trying to find a place in the business, do they take solace in the one and or, or should they be concerned about the other? Where where do they kind of... what What do you see as their future? Well, there are two different issues, okay, because the reason, first of all, there are very few spec sales at all, okay? Yeah. But the spec sales that they will buy obviously will be congruent with the kinds of movies they want to make. And if they're making movies for the foreign market, and if they're trying to make big action movies that have huge special effects um, that they know they can sell in China and Russia, Women have to write them to get their spec script sold. If they write big science fiction, they can get their spec script sold. Women have to look at the market and see what can they do that's getting sold. All the women that I know that I work with write romantic comedies, you know? Yeah. And we were trained to write romantic comedies because that's what we did best and that's what we knew best. And right now is the most fallow period for romantic comedies since I've been in the business. There are a few reasons for that, one of which is the last four were horrendous and cynical and badly cast. Yeah. Um, ever since since the two that worked, which were the Mila Kunis one and the um, uh, Natalie Portman one, right, both of right. which worked. 
but they would much rather generalize from the ones that didn't work. But the real reason is because they can't be sequelized. Yeah. No one wants to know what happens after the couple gets together. Do they get divorced? Do they have kids? Right. Do they break up? Do they go to a bar? You know, I mean, that's not the, that, that can't be sequelized. So if it can't be sequelized, it doesn't fit into a franchise model. And therefore, it's not in the business plan. As I said before, my most successful romantic comedies made $200 million uh, all in. And those are not the level of profits they're looking for. So the romantic comedy model doesn't fit in. They don't say that explicitly. What they say is women don't go to the movies. They'll go to men's movies if they're good. Um, but men will never go to women's movies. Those are the... Uh, religious principles. Which I find so wrong. Uh, I mean, it was women who dragged men to see Titanic, you know, uh, which in your book is the turning point. So I'm, I'm still and amazed I had, that prevails. I had men at Sleepless. I had men at How to Lose Absolutely. a Die. Um, women went to Something's Gotta Give. Um, you know, men went to Something's Gotta Give. If a movie is good and women go, women will take their dates. Yeah. Um, if men aren't offended by it, and often if men are, they're, like Sex in the City, there's enough women to compensate for it. Yeah. So, and they're hungry for their movies. Uh, every time a woman's movie does well, they're convinced, like Bridesmaids, which shocked everybody, both domestically and internationally, mm-hmm. the studios convince themselves it's about the stars, not the audience. Because, of course, we were all watching Mike and Molly before Bridesmaids, right? Right. <laughs> Now Melissa McCarthy is an international star, and we'll be seeing Melissa McCarthy movies as opposed yeah. to four women comedies. You know, and and you know, it's I, I found it interesting. I when I, as I finished the book, uh, you were talking about the Heat, which, as it happens, opens this week, mm-hmm. um, and so that'll be interesting to see because that's that's quite smart counter programming a female buddy cop movie opening uh, against some some pretty big tent poles. Brilliant. I think I said it was a brilliant idea, and I was yeah. jealous of Peter when he came up with it. <laughs> it's brilliant. It is, you know, it really is brilliant, and and the casting mm-hmm. couldn't be better. It could not. I mean, couldn't. there are two, there are two, no two female stars who are hotter at this point in time. I mean, it really and is internationally, inspired. it's inspired. It's really inspired. So I mean, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that really works. Um, Peter understands the business. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I want to. I, I would talk for a second uh, as we kind of start to wrap this up. Uh, you have a wonderful um, uh, image that you use to substitute for the old, really dry quadrant uh, speak by, you know, making each quadrant a pie. And you it, later in the book, you you point out how uh, the best exotic marigold hotel clearly kind of defies that model by hitting an upper, 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 upper end of a quadrant um, rather than two, which is sort of the industry gospel, right? You have to hit two quadrants, right. so there's no point. And here's one that hit the, a fringe of a quadrant, and it made a couple hundred million dollars around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that give filmmakers who perhaps don't want to necessarily subscribe to this gospel, does that give them hope that perhaps there are other ways of splitting up an audience than just those four quadrants? Can we, can we uh, slice this up and maybe kind of take a step outside the box and see it from a different point of view? Well, I think it makes directors and writers, particularly in England, <laughs> yeah. um, it gives them a model to argue from, um, and you have to cast it, obviously, with the same people that you put in the King's Speech, and, <laughs> yeah. and Helen Mirren, of course, and Jeremy Irons, and whomever else was, and Judy Dench, and whomever <laughs> else was in... Um, the Exotic Marigold Hotel, but I don't think it's in going to incline the studios to do another cocoon necessarily. Now, there is something about the international audience that's quirky and likes older stars because they love the stars of the immediate past. So if you put Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, their, you know, their, their young ward, The Rock, and Helen Mirren, and uh, let's see, who's one really older star? Uh, Sean Connery in a movie. Sure. Do you know? Yeah. That might perform internationally, but not necessarily in the new markets that they're uh, chasing. Let me let me let me wrap up by asking you about. Um, you need a really big explosion or put in. <laughs> right. 
let me let me wrap up by asking you whether or not there's room for um, some really inventive new business models. Because you know, obviously, the, the, we have this situation where the only people who can release movies on thousands of screens are the studios, and as we talked about earlier, the studios are corporate-owned. So you do have this conundrum that you don't have, say, an independently-owned, privately-owned uh, entity that could put you on thousands of screens where somebody doesn't have to worry about their gut being questioned by the, the board or, or you know, an earnings uh, report or whatever. Um, we have some interesting models now. You obviously have the Lionsgate and Summit uh, mm-hmm. model, and there's Open Road, which I've been kind of fascinated by, where we now have this vertically integrated company that is essentially uh, a couple of exhibitors who have hired Tom Ortenberg, formerly of Lionsgate, to uh, you know acquire and release movies. And a lot of studios were really upset when that happened because they felt like it was, uh, you know, the exhibitors thumbing their noses and saying, we're not going to give you our screens, we're going to get our own movies for our screens. But Open Road's doing pretty well, it seems. Do you think that, that Open Road is, a, is an interesting model, and might that be a harbinger of things to come? There are more opportunities for companies that can come in and, say, grab more than, you know, uh, top 40 markets that can maybe start to release movies on thousands of screens and really compete with the studios. Is there a chance of that? I don't know, you know. It's been historically hard to compete with the studios. They have all the product that the exhibitors want, you know. So if there gets to be too much of this, I think the studios will exercise their power. Yeah. I think there are a lot of ways that the model may change. Um, and that may be one way that new distributors can get a foothold for their own films. Um, but if there start to be too many and they take too many screens, uh, the studios own the power of the vast number of screens, you know? Yeah. Because most of them are chains, you know? And they yeah. need the big, they need the big, the big product. But I think we should think about other areas of potential change that fascinate me as a Hegelian. <laughs> yeah. One of them is how much indigenous production is going on. Uh, international indigenous production. The goal of all of these countries is not to have 17 out of 20 of their pictures be American, right? Right. China has huge quotas on the picture, American pictures coming in, and they're building 10 screens a day, and this year, far ahead of schedule, they've had $2 billion indigenous pictures. Um, The more an economy is growing the more it's, wanting, it's going to want to ascertain our technology, copy it, and create it so they have all the profits, right? Right. So as indigenous, and that's why Fox International Pictures was so brilliant as to get into co-financing with indigenous productions. They started making indigenous romantic comedies, helping you know our romantic comedies die, right? Because people would rather see romantic comedies in their own culture. As our numbers, if they start putting quotas on American pictures as they start developing our technology in their own way, and uh, fewer of our pictures, if fewer of our pictures are allowed in some of those more restrictive countries as they develop their own industry and have their own pictures to release, then we won't be able to rely so very, very much on the international market for that degree, 80% of our profits. And it is the goal of these countries to uh, be developing all of their own industries, especially this industry, because as it is, we're only getting 25% of our, pro- of our profits on Chinese films. Um, they want half of the products by do- half of the profits by doing co-productions. So as we get less money from these these properties, the domestic audience may become more important again. So what is so what you what you're essentially saying is we'll get back to where we were once they realize no, I never that, believe in going back to where we were. Well, not I back mean, to where we were, but we'll we we'll get back to forward. We'll get we'll uh, we'll get to well, a place where perhaps the creators, the the artistic uh, talent in the business will have more clout again because no. we're not so obsessed <laughs> with the with growth overseas or or is that never coming back? No. What I think I think we may have to become more attentive to the domestic market, okay? And that may mean that if a bunch of tent poles fail, okay, 
and we become eventually have to become eventually less reliant. If it goes back to 60-40 or 70-30, right, right, it starts looking like that. They're going to have to kill one or two tent poles at each studio, and that leaves room for movies. Right. And that leaves room for gut. So that leaves room for talent. But that's why I think it's going to be a combination of the old abnormal and the new abnormal. We'll never go back to exactly the way it was because we'll always have a good portion of it be still international, right? Right. Which, which I think is ultimately back. a good thing, especially it's in the international market. It's a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. Globalization has really good things. I'll give you an example if you have a second. Sure. When I did the siege, I could not sell Denzel Washington overseas. And we had to add Bruce Willis, right? Yeah. Now, Denzel Washington is a huge international star. It used to be said that you know, the international market was racist. Well, of course it was racist because it had walls up, right? Yeah. It never had black people in their countries before. Right. But now that they're exposed to heroic black people, they want them. Right. And that goes in reverse towards us. Lee Bing Bing is going to be the star of Transformers 4. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to know Chinese movie stars, right? This huge financier, Chinese financier named Bruno Wu is doing American-type blockbusters, but based on Chinese stories as co-productions with both American and Chinese cast. We're going to learn more about Chinese culture. Interesting. Ultimately, that's going to create some kind of larger understanding between nations who know nothing about each other. Last question um, pertaining to, to libraries, and uh, this is something that uh, I, I've observed for the last number of years, is that a lot of the studios seem to be so focused on making great big new movies that make their money very quickly, first weekend and then done. Yeah. They almost It's almost disposable, and they don't seem to care quite as much about their libraries. And we've had a lot of really interesting DVD companies emerge, like Olive Films and Twilight Time, who are effectively mining the libraries of the, of the studios and saying, we can, we can market this stuff, and they're just sub-licensing these things. And most recently, the most interesting one was Paramount cutting a deal for 600 of its library titles that it's going to give to Warner Brothers to market on Blu-ray, because it apparently Paramount just doesn't want to be bothered with its library. Uh, yet Warner Brothers is perfectly content to do it. I, I find this to be a fascinating change. Do do the studios not care about the longevity of their of their libraries anymore? Do some care more than others? What do you, what do you read in this? You just blew my mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thrilled. I love to learn new things. I imagine that uh, uh, someone there, and I could guess who, went through those titles and thought they weren't blockbuster worthy. And uh, and some, you know, somebody thought that was a great decision to make, and maybe in terms of their mandate it was, but somebody at Warner Brothers was looking longer into the future and thought these are still exploitable. Yeah. I don't know that that's a, cha- uh, a trend. I think um, most studios uh, do see the value in their libraries. I think you have to see the long view and not see this moment in time that only Marvel and DC are valuable. (laughs) (laughs) And anything that's that's written by uh, a YA author, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that's the thinking that may have driven that. I'm just guessing, though. Well, Linda, this has been uh, an education for me, and it has been a, pl- a pleasure and a privilege. I thank you, and uh, I am encourage. I have been encouraging on our on our Facebook page all of our listeners to uh, go out and and get your book. Uh, there have been a number of threads, uh, uh, all of them sort of, why do movies suck so badly? Why is this so terrible? Why is this so horrible? And my generic uh, post to all of them is, go read the new Obst. And well, thank uh, you so much. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have someone understand the book so much and respond to it in this way. Well, it's uh, again, I think, as I said, I think it's the most important book for people working in the business or who want to work in the business since uh, the William Goldman. And uh, that's, you know, I've read just about everything since. So I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. And you I so wish you all much. the best with the book. Thank you so very much. You got it. Thanks. Pleasure. Pleasure.
or rather the book by Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard. So you you do you do the math and figure out who uh, who did most of the work on the book. I don't know, but uh, anyway, it's uh, narrated by um, Tom Hanks and uh, stars this guy Billy Campbell from The Killing, who's surprisingly good as Lincoln, especially in the wake of uh, Daniel Day Lewis recently winning an Oscar and being you know you're going to compare everybody to him. He does a pretty darn good Lincoln, uh, certainly his own Lincoln. It's nothing at all like. Uh, you know, like what we saw in Lincoln. But um, no historical eye-openers here for me. I, I didn't go, oh, my gosh, really? That, that's not what I learned in the history books. But it's, uh, otherwise, it's, it's, uh, it's fine, and it's interesting, and it did really, really well on television in the ratings. And uh, that's why we're probably going to see uh, Killing Kennedy next. And, uh, you know, kill, isn't Killing Jesus next on his book list? Wasn't that the, of all the killing things that he's doing? I don't know. Yeah, I do not uh, know. No, How about killing his uh, career? Bad books. All right, that's it. We are done for this week. We'll be back next week. Please send us your uh, listener mails. We didn't get to them today, but we will get to them next week. Listener mails, Vox boxes, people who have never sent us a Vox box before. Don't be embarrassed about hearing your voice on on the show. You'll be forever immortalized as Mark and I make fun of you. And that's that's worth everything. So send us your Vox boxes. Send us your suggestions for our outros. And send us listener mail at gods at digigods.com. We'll see you next week.